2: The podcast that aims to tell the no holds barred truth about being a woman post 40, created and hosted by me, journalist and author, Sam Baker. This week's guest needs zero introduction, and not just because she's been here before. Marion Keyes was one of the first guests on the shift, and her episode, episode two, if you're interested, is still one of the most popular. So I'm delighted that she's agreed to come back to chat about her new book, the long awaited sequel to her smash hit, Rachel's Holiday. The wonderful Again Rachel revisits Rachel Walsh. The Walsh family and everybody's favorite fictional fantasy, Luke Costello. Twenty-five years after we saw her leave rehab, and it's no spoiler to say that, like its main characters, it's older, wiser, and hotter than ever.
0: Now that I've finished writing it, I'm finding it very hard to move on. All I want to do is keep writing sex scenes with Luke. I mean, I—it <laughs> is. I'm—I'm I'm sort of ashamed of it, and then I'm sort of not.
2: Anyway, I'm not going to wang on about the fact that she's sold over 39 million copies globally and she still worries she's not good enough. Bless her heart. Or that she's just launched a podcast, Now You're Asking, with her friend Tara Flynn. I'm going to let Marion do the talking. And boy, did we talk. With typical generosity, wisdom and humour, Marion opened up about infertility, addiction, embracing change, how it feels to revisit your best-loved character and yourself 25 years on and fucking Fitbit addiction. And the many, many, many joys of being unyoung. Oh, it's so lovely to see you. And thank you for coming back on the ship. Oh my God. Anytime I would do anything for you, you know that. Oh, I love you. you. I do. Love you back. Oh, I mean, I tweeted this morning. I I absolutely loved Again, Rachel. And it was nearly two years ago that you and I were on a stage in Liverpool. It was near the end of the Grown Ups tour. In fact, it was the last of the live events before the madness began. And you said, I wasn't expecting it at all. You said, I think I might have an idea for a sequel to Rachel's Holiday. And like the room went crazy. It erupted. People were out of their seats. And did you at that point
0: think, Oh, my God. Maybe not. Maybe not. I mean, it has been... It's been a very weird thing because like, I've never done a sequel before. And I mean, of all the fecking books to pick, y- yeah. you know, it's the one that people have really moved by and it's affected people. It's changed people's lives. You know, a lot of people have got clean or sober because of it. And I did. I mean, I was very, very worried because, you know, the way like it's happened to me a few times, like I've read a book and I've loved it. And then the sequel has come along and the sequel hasn't been as good. And it has not only damaged itself, but it damaged mm. my opinion of the original book as well. So I think, I mean, I have been very worried and I went into it thinking if I feel that it's a shambles, if I feel that it's not working or I can't do a decent job of it, I'll back away from it. Because I had actually tried to write a sequel to Watermelon about, it must have been about five years ago, the book that eventually became The Break. I had started out with that plot for Claire and Adam and I was incapable of doing it for several reasons. One, I couldn't connect with the character of Claire any longer. Like, kind of Claire's kind of exuberance is no longer mine. And mm. also, like, I was devastated at the thought of breaking up her and Adam because, I mean, that would have been a a, a kind of a an open and shut case of infidelity, really. Yeah. And, and I just, I didn't want to hurt them. I know that sounds ridiculous, but I also felt it was sort of cliched. But an idea had come to me about Luke and Rachel, which is not... Sexual, it's not infidelity, it's not that. And I thought that's interesting and believable. And kind of the more I did research in it, the more it made sense to me that this would be a life event. I mean, that nobody ever ever once, and that it has an aftermath. So I thought if I could do that in a way that kind of honoured the event and honoured both of them, then I'd have a book. I mean, obviously something happens because at the very start of the book, um, you know, this isn't a spoiler. Rachel is not with Luke. It's 2018. I set it in 2018 because of the pandemic. Jesus Christ. I mean, like two years ago when I started, we hadn't a clue that it would still be a thing two years later. So yes, I set it in 2018. So she is not with Luke at this moment. (laughs) but they come into each other's lives very early on in the book and and things happen, yeah.
2: Yeah. (laughs) I mean, how does it feel to have created characters that people care about so passionately? Because when I tweeted about the book this morning, people were piling in going like, I would die for Luke Costello. You're like,
0: oh my God. I mean, I can't tell you how lucky I feel, how incredibly fortunate I feel. You know, I think any writer feels that every book they write will be their last. I think most writers feel that we're just about keeping ahead of the posse. I mean, that's how I feel. And when I think of the person I was in 1996 when I was writing Rachel's Holiday, I mean, I really tried my best with it. And it was a very, it was a sincerely written book. But to have created, I mean, not just Rachel, but this man. I mean, I really fancy him. Like, yeah, it seems like most of the internet does. <laughs> yeah. And this is such an odd way to feel, but maybe because of the strange times. I wrote a a lot of this book late at night, not late at night, but like from half nine to half 11, I used to work on the book because I used to write about Luke. And I mean, there are painful things in the book, but the writing about Luke bits were just like, oh my God, I love this. (laughs) And... And now that I finished writing it, I'm finding it very hard to move on. All I want to do is keep writing sex scenes with Luke. I mean, I, (laughs) it is, I'm, I'm sort of ashamed of it. And then I'm sort of not, because it was one of the things that I actually found very, it was a source of enjoyment and a source of escape all through the last horrible 22 months. Yeah. And the thing is, it was a challenge to not make him Ridiculously perfect. And like the thing is, he's not a perfect man. And that became more necessary, I realized, you know, with the sequel because I'm older. I know that no matter how much you love a person and they love you, at the end of the day, we're all just human beings and we are all flawed, imperfect, incredibly irritating at times. And, you know, Luke has limitations. I mean, he has. Like he's very moral, which can be good. And it can also be difficult to be in a relationship with a man like that. A little bit pious. Yeah. Yeah. And a bit rigid. And I mean, there are other things about him, like uh, he's very tame in like the food that he likes or like the holiday locations he wants to go on. Yeah, he's a little bit of a vanilla. I We're looking for criticism. Yeah, but- yeah. But he is he is immensely vanilla. And I have, you know, my beloved niece, my 21 year old niece, who so I like, I cannot go for like more than 30 seconds without talking about her. But I asked her to read the sequel because she hadn't read Rachel's Holiday. And I wanted to see if it was coherent to somebody who didn't know about the real men and who didn't know about the watches and everything. And at the start of the book, it Again, this isn't a spoiler. Uh, you like you find out in the first page. Rachel is seeing a man called Quinn, and Quinn is very different to Luke. Um, Quinn would not have the bland food. You know, Quinn would be offered the Peruvian food. You know, and he wants to go on holiday to places where people don't know how to pronounce, like Laos or Lauer, however it is. You know, and my niece was reading this, and she goes Quinn for the win. You know, and yeah. that was interesting. Like that, not everybody is is a Luke lover.
2: Yeah, it's interesting. I do wonder if it will divide into the people who'd read Rachel's Holiday. But how was it? Because you touched on just then that you wrote it, I mean, very much at the start of your career. So you were not only really revisiting Rachel, but you were revisiting yourself, you know, Marion, over 20 years ago. How was that?
1: Well,
0: I mean, there are lots of ways to answer this. Like as an addict, it was a really great experience that kind of what I had written in Rachel's holiday about addiction and about recovery, that I've always been fairly um, hardcore about recovery. You know, I've always felt that there's no, there's no easier, softer way. Like there's no kind of way of getting around it. And not everybody likes that in me personally. And I think, you know, there are many people who've tried to get clean and sober without using the 12 steps and that, and that that's not the way they do it. And I'm very pleased that I hadn't kind of deviated or toned it down or anything. You know, I've just realised I have a clip stuck in my hair. Sorry. Oh God, I hadn't even that, noticed. Yeah, um, I have. Yeah. yeah, you know, and I was glad because in again, Rachel, like Rachel is working as a, an addictions therapist in the Cloisters and I was very pleased about that. Then there were other things I was less pleased about. <laughs> I mean, partly as a writer, I mean, it was agonising having to reread Rachel's Holiday simply because, I mean, I like I knew nothing about editing. I had no idea and I found that quite mortifying. And then there were bits and pieces that I, I actually asked if I could make tweaks to Rachel's Holiday. Like there was a sex scene with Rachel and Luke in Rachel's Holiday where the issue of consent was not clear. And obviously, You know, 25 years ago, I had clearly thought that the contract between me, the writer, and the reader was strong enough to say, we know that Luke and Rachel are mad about each other. It's the scene where Luke tells Rachel to take off her dress. And at the time, I thought it was an unspoken, oh, narrative that like Luke was a good man and that this Mm. was not a problem. But rereading it, I thought there could be young women reading this now who think that this is an appropriate way for a man to behave and that they're not getting the subtext, that they're just reading it Mm. literally. And that worried me. So like things like that. As a feminist, I have become different. You know, I've changed over the years. And then also like the casual, like the way 25 years ago, like to use the word fat as a slur, it was just so done. And that appalled me. And I mean, I wish... That I had known better in nineteen ninety six, but I didn't. And all I can do is say that like I know better now. And so I'm trying yeah. to do better now. And in one way, I think it's it's wonderful that we have improved that way. And you know, that whole awful pressure on women to be skinny oh, has yeah. I mean, like the thing is, I wonder like at my age, I don't think it will ever really go. But like even Rachel addresses it, you know, because she goes she goes wild swimming. Yeah, and uh, of yeah, course, once, yeah. once. Yeah. I mean, yeah once and you know that thing of like getting out into your swimming togs in front of everybody like I think as a woman like that just never ever becomes comfortable unless you're Amanda Holden or somebody like that you know we are all judging ourselves all women no matter how much more evolved you might feel or think you feel it just doesn't go away it's I mean, you know. I feel like I'm too old to ever really make peace with it. But I honestly, I've said this to you before, Sam, you know, people under 30, women under 30, I honestly think they're different. I mean, not all of them. Of course, not mm. all of them. I mean, I think it is still impossible to avoid those messages that like a thin girl is a good girl. A good girl yeah. is a girl who doesn't eat too much, you know, and you know, the way the message has sort of morphed into, um, oh, you know, strong, not skinny. Like it's yeah. bullshit. It's skinny and skinny, you know. Yeah. If you have muscles, grand, but it is about being skinny. But I honestly think that there are young women who are pushing back. And I think, you know, there are far more, I was going to say plus sized or larger sized. I mean, they are normal sized women in the Mm -hmm. public eye who are owning their size and saying, you know, this is how I am. This is how I look. And I am, I am not only beautiful, I am normal. Uh, You know, I represent women, you know, that there are many, many ways. No, I do have hope. I honestly do, Sam. I do.
2: I bet there are so many women listening to this or will be when it goes out who though will be going. Yeah, but when I've lost the seven pounds, I mean, I'm slightly thinking that and I know this is so bad, but I've said this to you before and now I'm actually going to say it to several thousand people. You know, the best thing about having longish COVID, I'm sorry, it was, it was that I lost a good £7. That's terrible, but I still have that horrible 70s
0: mindset. Yeah, But it is not terrible. You know, you're judging yourself for something that you can't help. Like none of us can help feeling that way. Like we can't. I mean, like, not only did I get those messages in my home, but we were getting it from the media from day one, you know. Very think, true. Yeah. Like, I think you and I have talked about the Slimpsia bread of the 70s. Yeah. yeah I I mean, right. Vita. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Cottage cheese. <laughs> like, at the Battle of the Bulge, if you can pinch more than an inch. Do you know, like, it's. It's horrible.
2: It is horrible. It's still ingrained, that inch-pinching thing.
0: I'm having to stop myself, do it now. I'm literally sitting on my hands. And also, like, I feel the need to say, when I got COVID, I did not lose my appetite. I didn't lose any weight. In fact, because I was staying in bed, I put on weight and I was gutted because...
2: That's not fair, is it?
0: It's not fair. But like, again, you and I have said this. I mean, there's something really, really wrong with like intelligent women who think that there would be nothing terribly wrong with getting a kind of a mild dose of dysentery. You know, that it would just... (laughs) Sorry, I shouldn't be laughing, I know. But but quite genuinely, if that happened to me, I would be thinking every cloud. Yeah, exactly. I think I actually said that about Covid. Every yeah, child, I can but, get into my skinny jeans. Yeah, but you're not to be hard on yourself about it because we would we would think differently if we could. I mean, nobody wants to go around hating themselves. Nobody wants to go around being hungry. Nobody wants to go around feeling guilty about every bite of food that they put into their mouths and keeping this kind of horrific calculator going in their head all day thinking, oh God, yeah, how many calories was in that? And bloody bland. Oh yeah, well, if I get the low fat milk, that brings the calorie count down to mm. like all that kind of noise going on as a background commentary is exhausting. Do you still calorie count? Yes, and I also do things like count the exercise. You know, like the worst thing mm. in the world really is those fucking Fitbits. Oh, I you know, know? I'm addicted to mine. Yeah, like it's and it's just another way of failing every day. You know, not doing the ten thousand steps, like just another way of failing. Yeah. Yeah,
2: it's so interesting. The number of the women who've been on this podcast who, when, you know, at the end, and I'm going to make you do all the questions again just to see how your answers change, um, who say they wish that when they were in their 20s, they had appreciated how great they looked, you know, and they want that message, you know, be yourself, be happy with who you are, all of that, and particularly body image, but everything. But nearly every woman I speak to, that's the message, that they regret that... That they hadn't appreciated.
0: Appreciated themselves when they were younger. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's funny looking back. I never felt that way. Um, I always felt wrong. Mm. I I still find it hard to feel that about myself. You know, the funny thing is, I don't think I'm bad now. No. I sort of feel better now. You know, I, I mean, I was a lot thinner when I was younger. But I can appreciate myself, my looks more now than I could then. Yeah, it's so strange and I mean, Yeah, but I'm trying to say, I would rather look like I look now than the way I looked then. And I think that must be because I was so full of confusion and self-loathing then. And I mean, it hasn't left me entirely, like obviously not, but I can definitely appreciate my appearance now. One of the things I, I absolutely loved
2: about what you did with Rachel and Luke, but also I think it comes through in talking to you is... That kind of self-acceptance that, if you're lucky, comes with being older. It's like I think I said about, again, Rachel, it's older, wiser and hotter, actually, yes. than yes. Um, Rachel's holiday. Thank you. But they're still themselves. They're still yeah. flawed. There's no like perfection going on. It's almost like some sort of coming to terms with the imperfection, maybe.
0: Yes. Yeah. I mean, because we can't not age. And I mean, one of the many points that I try to make in my books and in this book is that, like, we're still allowed to be sexual. You know, we're still allowed to have sex. Um, That, like, we don't get to an age where we're suddenly too repulsive um, to be attractive and to want sex. Like, we don't have to be a size eight and perky-boobed and lean tied, Yeah, that has been something I've appreciated in older women, you know, that they've passed down to me that like, kind of, it's very patronising for young people to think that women in their 40s and 50s and 60s don't have sex or don't want to have sex. And I mean, I know that there are many people who don't want to, and that's grand. But for those who want to, we don't have to be perfect. People can still fancy us. It's not just about the body. I'm saying it clumsily, but yes. And Rachel is far from perfect. And like, so is Quinn, her new boyfriend, you know, like he does exercise and stuff. But like when she meets him, he's still 42. Like this is what she tells Claire, like um, even though he, you know, does weights and that sort of thing. He's not a 19 year old male swimwear model. He's just fairly ordinary
2: as well. Yeah, it's uh, I don't know if you've watched all the way through the end of the credits on Mamma Mia. This is a sad person I am. At the end of the first film, they do a routine. I can't remember what it is a dance routine yeah all of them all together in these really skin
0: tight the Lycra. all of them the men okay. and the women you see, I've only you seen have... it once and... it's my guilty no, pleasure do not say that there, there's <laughs> nothing guilty about it no Sam no <laughs> alright it's my it's unguilty pleasure yes you like it don't apologise
2: I recommend that you scroll right to the end okay you've got Meryl Streep Julie Waters um that amazing woman whose name I can't remember and and the boys and, and yeah and the boys and they're all they're all in this skin tight lycra and then you know amanda seyfried dominic come on obviously they're thin and hot and all of the things that society tells you're meant to be because they're both in their 20s but maybe i'm just like telling myself this because it makes me feel better. But somehow they aren't the ones who look comfortable and right. They don't make the others look like past it.
0: Yeah, but you're saying that like just because a person is unyoung. Unyoung, yes. I really like that. I'm i that. Yeah. Yeah. That they don't have to look haggard and decrepit. You know? (laughs) And 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 I mean but and like unsexy. Yeah. And I mean sexiness is about a lot more than muscles or tightness. I mean, it's about being joyful and it's about being funny and it's about being charismatic and charming and twinkly-eyed. Is that kind of what you're getting at? I don't know what I'm getting at, but it's what it comes back to, really. It
2: all comes back to the book and to how you personally have changed in the last, well, 20 years, but actually maybe 10 or even five. Yeah. It's about accepting Mm. the change, isn't it, and feeling comfortable with it. And that's such a huge theme in the book.
0: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, the whole thing of aging is quite bizarre because when I was younger, I kind of thought it wouldn't happen to me. I think (laughs) I have always felt like that about things that I've been afraid of, that like if I just decide it won't happen to me, it won't happen to me. It was the same like when I was drinking alcoholically. I thought, oh, Jesus, I'm in danger of becoming an alcoholic. Therefore, I must make sure that it doesn't happen to me. But like suddenly I'm 58 and I'm thinking, fuck, that's that's when you think about it. It's quite not young. Um, Yeah, it's quite scary. How do we get here? Yeah. And it's like, we only get the one life. And I know that I'm saying all kinds of cliches here, but it's like, I only get the one life. And this is where I am on my timeline. And, uh... And yeah, I would have stayed 52 forever. 52, I loved being 52. 52 was just perfect because I was old enough to be sort of in the realm of the world didn't expect anything from me any longer. Yeah, but uh, yeah. my knees were still good and I didn't have arthritis in my fingers and, and all these things. It's like, Jesus Christ, the nerve of my fingers getting arthritis. That's how I feel. It's like, how dare they? How how dare arthritis come and take up residence in me who was not ready for it? How your typing? Is it still all right? It's OK. It's OK. I should really be doing the voice act stuff. But I like typing. I just like the connection between my head and my fingers. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. So we get old. And as Tony says, I mean, it's better than the alternative. So it is all about acceptance because there's thick all we can do. I mean, resisting it isn't going to um, stop anything. And having said that, I mean, I am a woman who is quite open about having Botox, you know, and like who is quite open about having fillers and getting my hair dyed and I feel I feel zero shame about that. I suppose I mean the only kind of thing I would say is that like I wouldn't want anyone else to feel that that's what they have to do. I wish no, I it's the, just what you want. Yeah, I wish I had the courage to not do it, but I don't. And again, I'm not blaming myself for that.
2: No, it's not
0: courage, it's just a choice and I I don't, but that
2: is probably not in small part because I'm a bit scared of injecting that stuff into my face because
0: who knows what might happen. Yeah. I mean for, for a long time I was like that. And I got over it really quickly. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, like kind of alarmingly quickly. Planning for your next trip?
2: One of the really big things, apart from addiction and and growing up and acceptance, really, is infertility. Mm. And you write so movingly about the emotional impact of of miscarriage. Why was it
0: important to you to address that? It's funny. I hadn't kind of personalised it. I hadn't really connected it with me. And it's only now that the book is finished that I realise that it was sort of the path not taken with me. And Tony, like, I am almost fetishistic about family. Like, I love big families. And I may have said this to you before, but like, I wanted six children. I know that sounds insane. And if I'd had one, maybe that would have kind of been such a shock of a thing that I I would have toned down my demands. But yeah, I would have (laughs) loved, I would have loved lots of kids. And I mean, we both would have. And Tony and I, we still talk about the children we didn't get to have. And it's not that I'm sad anymore. I mean, I'm not. I can't describe it. But there's regret, there's sorrow. There's a kind of a parallel life that we might have lived if it had happened. And because I'm very close to my siblings and they have children between 21 and 2, especially when I'm around the younger ones, like the babies, the toddlers, there is a kind of ferocious longing that still comes on me for them, or for babies, or, oh, I'm, I, yeah, so yes, I suppose, yeah, obviously something happens with Rachel and Luke, and it doesn't happen, and I think I was just lucky in that it didn't, it didn't break up my marriage, and I don't know why it didn't, because it's hard, it's really hard. I had always thought it would be for me, and especially when I met him, because he's so kind, like he's so, he is so good with children and babies. They trust him because he's gentle. It's a funny thing. His dad had it as well. And his nephew, Jude, is exactly the same. Babies just calm when they're with him. He would have been a really beautiful parent. I like any child would have been so lucky to have him as their dad. And uh, yeah, and we're lucky that we sort of, we we recalibrated our relationship. And like it had to shrink down because it's just us. And I feel lucky that we managed to do that. And I suppose I also feel lucky that we do still have kids in our lives. And as I say, we have the kind of the whole range from, well, Tomás isn't a baby anymore. But like, you know, and we see Emma, who is 21 and a sort of an adult. And Emma is sort of our friend. And, you know, and the the 13 year old and the 11 year old nephew come and stay with us. So like we do have that we do have that kind of input. And I think we do see how how very painful it is to love people, to to love children, you know, to not be able to protect them from the sorrows that are inevitable. Um, But, you know, Sam, it took a good while, but I feel, oh, I don't know exactly. I don't feel sad anymore. I feel sorry for the people I didn't get to meet. You know, sorry for the people that I don't have in my life. Like it would have been, I mean, everyone says being a parent is a really hard job, but it would have been, it would have been lovely. But like you get what you get, and it's about I suppose bringing it back to that, like to what is what is good in that. Like, I'm sober. I didn't relapse. You know, it didn't didn't break up me and Tony. And I'm not. And I'm not sad today. You know, I can I can link in with this, but mostly it's fine. And Christ, I am grateful. I mean, I think for me, it's not about what happens to me. It's about how I manage to to deal with the disappointment or the. The loss, the regret, the sadness, the jealousy, the self-blame, all Mm -hmm. of those things. And I'm not left with that today. When I feel sorrow, it's a pure sadness. To have a sadness corrupted by self-loathing or self-blame is a terrible thing. And I'm grateful that, that I don't have that. Jesus that was a right lecture. <laughs> no, no,
2: thank you for answering. Why do you think like women's fertility, I mean, because it is women's fertility on the whole, is still such a hot topic. I mean, like the week we're recording this, Betty White died age 99 and she achieved so much and she was such a lodestone for so many people. And every other headline was about the fact she hadn't had children. Yeah. And then today there's all that Pope stuff yes. about denied yeah. parenthood.
0: Yeah. I mean, well, sorry, what the fuck? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, again, it's because it is helpful for a patriarchal society to remain patriarchal, um, to kind of other women as just wombs, walking wombs, you know, wombs in an apron, wombs in lipstick. And yeah, to, to kind of reduce a woman to a child haver, takes away all other identities. You know, it takes away their intelligence. It takes away their entrepreneurial spirit. It takes away their sense of humor. You know, it takes away their power. And and to kind of To circulate that myth that, you know, a woman who doesn't have a child is in some way unnatural. It's a great way of kind of copper fastening that image or that idea that a woman's primary function is to have children. If we think of women that way, it disempowers all women because it's like, well, we can't really take them seriously in the workplace or, you know, or in politics or in anything really, because, you know, they have one main function, one only function, really. I mean, so it's very much a kind of a, a chicken and egg device. It's a great way of keeping women in their place. And I mean, Jesus Christ, like you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't. Like if you have five children, you're regarded as like, well, maybe, you know, irresponsible and bad to the planet. But if you don't, I mean, my God, if you are childless by choice, Jesus Christ, the amount of opprobrium. Is that the word, Sam? That like, like the act, Absolute judgment. How dare a woman decide, you know, I am fine as I am. I don't want to have children. I don't mind people who do, but it's not for me. People get very, 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 very annoyed about that. Yeah, It's like it's
2: not allowed. It's it's like you're allowed to not be able to have them.
0: Yes. But to possibly be able and not have had them. It's just, you know, and I think you are, yeah. And that is never, ever, ever said to a man. You know, if you meet a man who's 56 and you say kids, and he says no, you don't go, well, 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 (laughs) you know, well, who do you think you are? You know, just deciding not to have kids, it simply never happens to men. And also, can I come back to like those women who can't have children, the utter prurience about their fertility? Mm. The number of people who ask me why, yes, why it's like. How fucking dare you? Do you mind? It's actually literally none of your business. You know, and the way that nobody would ever say to a man, you know, why? Like, are you are you firing blanks? Like, nobody would say <laughs> that to a man. I mean, they simply wouldn't. I mean, it just wouldn't. It would be regarded as an outrage. So, like, women, when we are reduced to simply being baby havers, it disempowers us and it dehumanizes us in all kinds of ways, all of them bad. I noticed that you dedicated again, Rachel, to your mom. Yes, Is that the first time. Okay, I did my first book to my parents, to both my mother and father, especially because, like, I was freshly out of rehab and I was so grateful to them. But I can I talk to you about my relationship with my mother? Go for we, it. Yes, we have gone through this incredible thing in the last two years. My mother and I are very different. In that, like, um, she's a devout Catholic and it has been sort of her saving thing. You know, And my dad died three years ago and life has really not been easy for her, especially in the last two years. And this is said sort of tongue in cheek and, you know, it's first word. But like all through the pandemic, she didn't have Wi-Fi, you know, so she didn't have Netflix. She had to live alone. She couldn't see anyone like and her, the love of her life really is her grandchildren. And she couldn't see anyone. And then she had cataracts and she couldn't even read since dad died because she minded him like so compassionately, so tenderly. When he died, she rediscovered a new lease of life and she was off out to bridge and she was off out to lunch and she was off away in taxis, getting her hair done and into town to the shops and everything stopped. And she remained so buoyant, so hopeful, so positive, so upbeat, so funny and entertaining because all she had were phone calls and the radio. And I have just grown to admire her resilience and her dogged refusal to be beaten by this. When everyone that I know, their mood was so low and we were acting out in some way like overeating, over drinking, overstaying in bed, staring at the ceiling, you know, like it's been a really tough time. Mm. Yeah. The Irish TV station put mass on every day and like so she couldn't really see it, but she could hear it. And I suddenly realised, I mean, yeah, this is actually providing comfort for her and I've said this a couple of times, but I have fallen in love with my mother and I feel so grateful. I've always loved her, but it's but it different. hasn't always been easy. No, it? no, because I am not the daughter that she ideally would have liked because we disagree on fundamentals. You know, like the Catholic Church is so misogynistic and I despise it. I abhor it. And it's her stalwart, like it's the centre of her life. But yeah, we are just such good pals and I'm so full of admiration for her and you know we've been talking so much and she's told me things about her early life that she'd never told me before and I'm so full of admiration for her it's been a beautiful thing and also I am so grateful to her for like her gift of storytelling like she's such a storyteller she has such a great grasp of narrative and she's just so funny and I feel I'm so lucky to have her as my mother because she has given me so much so, yeah, it was very important for me that she had this book, you know, and I mean it with such love. And I, honestly, I feel so lucky, you know, like at 58, that this is kind of a new, a new thing for yeah, us. That's
2: amazing. Yes,
0: she read again, Rachel? She has. And it's funny. I mean, there is a point in the book, I'll try and do it without spoilers, where like it's after Mammy Walsh's party and uh, Rachel and Luke are... They're friends again, will we say. And then a chapter ends. So like Luke leaves and the final line of that chapter is and I let him go. And my publisher wanted me to end the book there. Oh, I'm so glad. Oh, you my did God. That. No, no, no. I like I couldn't do it. But, you know, I was canvassing opinion and I asked my mother and my mother was outraged. Outraged, And she was so kind of protective of the book. And she was like, no, you can't. You absolutely cannot leave it there. You can't. You know, she was more involved in this book than she has been with anything else. And Sam, it is not because of the book. It's because I have been less snarky to her. I've been kind to her. And, you know, this is such a kind of a, a trite and obvious thing to say. But if you stop being mean to somebody and mocking what they like, if you start being nice to them, they start being nice back to you. And we've had a far more collaborative relationship. You know, she was like, absolutely not. No, you get back and you you write that book until it's the ending I want. And it was lovely. Yeah. And she keeps telling anyone like, you know, she's back out in the world a little bit now, and she keeps telling people it's a great book. That's a real turn I know. Up for the books, yeah, isn't it? yeah. She doesn't mind the writing. No, Just, I mean there is writing, but there's not as much writing maybe as some of them. Yeah, I mean it's a love story, and uh, she is this book's champion. And I think it would be fair to say that she has been appalled at the carry on in other books like I know like she really was like the break two books ago she told me Amy was a right piece of work like she was horrified she was okay with Amy while Amy's husband had left her but the minute Amy started having sex with other men she withdrew her affection so yeah she's on board I should give you a little chance to talk about the podcast Oh, God. Yeah. So tell me where it came from. The, OK, right. The agony aunts and oh, yeah, the whole the, thing. Well, there's this wonderful man called Steve Doherty. He's been a BBC radio producer for a long time. And he's worked with David Sedaris and people like that. And he knew Tara, Tara Flynn, my friend, who is an actress and comedian and a comic writer. And he had read some of my nonfiction book and he kind of dreamt up this show where like Tara and I would sort of be in conversation and I would read some of my nonfiction. And so we did two series of that for Radio 4 and it was called Between Ourselves. And It went down really well, and the BBC wanted similar, but they didn't want my nonfiction to be included in it because once something like that is included, it can't be a podcast. So it was actually the BBC that came up with the idea of a sort of an agony ant format where people would send us a kind of a range of problems, you know, from the comic to the very, very serious, and that Tara and I would. Try and be helpful, mostly by drawing on our own life experience. And I mean, both Tara and I have been in therapy and have had kind of mental health issues. And, you know, they kind of gave us this loose brief. So between the three of us, between me and Tara and Steve, we've been allowed to do this and You know, the way sometimes something really beautiful lands in your lap, you just think, Oh my God, this wonderful thing has come from almost nowhere. That's what it's been like working with the two of them. Like, Tara is so wise and she's so kind, and she's one of those people who just inspires me to be better. And then Steve has a really great sensibility. Like, he knows when something is moving and he knows when something is funny. And he's great at balance. Like, he's a really great producer. You know, I think we've tried very, very hard to be thoughtful in what we say and to offer hope and to be completely devoid of judgment. And both Tara and I realised when we were coming to it that we had completely outgrown cynicism and snark, like both of us, to do with our age or something like that, or maybe the times. But we want to be nice, you know, and there was a time when nice was regarded as an insult almost. Like, I don't care. The world is hard. And Tara and I both want to offer niceness. And we both put Our hands up and say that in the past, snarkiness and cynicism was kind of the order of the day. It was like, it was how you were meant to be. Yeah. And we're both ashamed of it now and we don't want to be that way anymore. So uh, we're hoping that people will find it fun and comforting and engaging because I always love reading other people's problems, not because I wish ill on them, but because I think, oh, I see other people are worried about things too. And it kind of makes me feel at like, grand. I'm not alone in the world. You know, I'm not alone as a warrior. So it's called, what's it called? Now You're Asking. Because you see, the thing is, people are asking us and now you're asking. Yeah, and so if people want to send in questions to us, it's uh, Antara at bbc.co.uk and it's on BBC Radio 4, also on BBC Sounds and then it's on Wherever people get their podcasts, I believe that's what I say. Wherever you get your podcasts, you'll get all the lingo. (laughs) Yes, I will. I will. I'm still old school.
2: (laughs) I saw that your New Year's resolution
0: was to have another go at meditating. How is that going? Badly, Sam. And I'll tell you why. (laughs) It's because. I am too giddy at the moment because the proofs of, again, Rachel just went out just before Christmas. And we're recording this on the 6th of January. And I am too agitated. Like when the morning comes, this is dreadful and I know it, but I'm an addict and I'm like diving on Instagram and Twitter to see if anyone has read and to check the overnights, as they say, to see if anything has come in. Do you know what? After your tweet today, that has meant so much to me because you're the first person who addressed Luke. Luke. And because I respect you so much and because you're very much a book person, I think I can sort of calm down now. It's kind of like I can, I can let it go a bit and just trust <laughs> and just worry. trust that it'll be, you know, because it will be what it will be anyway, you know. But I suppose what I really wanted someone to say, oh, my God, Luke, you know, yeah. that's all I wanted for someone to say. I can you do said that. It.
2: I can send you all the hot, sweaty, <laughs> overall gifts that you like. <laughs> And it was that, it was in response to that, that then somebody tweeted me back and said, I would die for Luke Costello. Oh, you see, sort
0: of, so would I.
2: So would I. Damn him, we've come back to him. Yes. That's not right. That's not what this podcast meant to be about. Middle-aged women getting overwrought about a fictional Why character. Why not? <laughs> right, the questions that I always ask, that I you've answered before, I'm going to ask you again, what's your emotional age? My emotional age, 52. <laughs> And we know why, because you've told us.
0: Yeah, I was at my happiest.
2: Yeah, no, no. But I, I know I'm in really good form today as well. Thank you. Can you give us a book recommendation?
0: Yes. Yeah. It's a book called Before You Knew My Name. It's by a writer called Jacqueline Bublitz. Sam, you would love it. I predicted great things for it. It came out in July, and I think between the pandemic and everything. It's about two women, and this is not a spoiler. At the start, one of them has just been murdered, and it's set in New York, but it's written by this New Zealand writer. I adored it. It's a feminist book. It's about violence against women, but it's very beautiful. It's just honest. I I would beg everyone to read it. I adored it.
2: I am heading to the bad place to download it straight (laughs) after
0: this. (laughs) What advice would you give younger women? Don't try and be anyone but yourself. Even if you think people are going to laugh at you, don't pretend to like things you don't like. Don't deny things that you do love. Be true to yourself because you'll hate yourself if you're not. And also, authenticity is incredibly attractive.
2: I think that's pretty consistent with what you said last time. Is I don't it? I remember, but I think One. so. Yeah, more or less. Yeah. Who is your old bird role model? kind
0: of my mother would it be okay to say that of course it is I yeah. mean like she still gets her hair done you know she still loves a chat you know she still likes makeup and clothes she's interested you know she loves stories about oh you know romances uh, you know she's always kind of dying to know about the nieces and nephews what relationships they're having and you know like I like her attitude to life at the moment Cool. what's your superpower my superpower I'm intuitive. I can see things in people that they don't always know in themselves. That makes me sound incredibly creepy. Um <laughs> it does but I'm porous. Like it's 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 a downside as well as a superpower. Yeah. And lastly, how many fucks do you give? I give a few, Sam, I'm afraid to say. Yeah, I wish I could say I give none. One or two still, you know, at times I will give zero at times, which is nice. Between one and three, I suppose. And it depends on the day and it depends on how much sleep I've had. If I haven't had much sleep, I'm afraid the fucks are harder to kind of not give. But yeah, there are times when I really don't give any. And that's lovely. How many fucks do you? That's great. That's a fabulous
2: question. Thank you so much. It's been so lovely. I'm sorry we couldn't do this in person. I love you Sam Baker thank you for having me I love you too thank you for coming on and good luck with all of your wonderful projects thank you thank you for listening you can hear a new episode of The Shift each Tuesday on Acast Apple Podcasts Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts if you like what you hear please do rate review and follow because it really does help other people find us And if you'd like to know more about my own experience of shifting, my book, The Shift, How I Lost and Found Myself After 40, and You Can Too, is out now in paperback. See you next time.